Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Before we get started, we found out last week that we were nominated for a Webby Award. Very excited about this. Uh, we're up for the best general series podcast in the news and politics category. I want to thank the Webbies for nominating us. It's an honor. This is our first season, so it's a huge honor for us. But we're up against some really stiff competition, so I need your help. Uh, help us to win the People's Voice Award in our category by voting online. Now, the way you do that is you go to vote.webbyawards.com, and you got to cast your vote before April 21st. That's a deadline. We'll also put a link for the vote in the episode description, also on my social media channels. Need your help. Thanks for your support. Okay, let's get on with today's episode. Is this America? The land of the free and the home of the brave. Wake up, America. Wake up. The political division in the country undeniably deep right now. There's a big question on a lot of people's minds. Can Americans come together and heal? I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. This is a show where we're exploring what it takes to make meaningful change in a country as divided as our country has become. I'm Van Jones. Look, this topic could not be more powerful than it is right now, given how much you know fear there is in the country. I think there's just a lot of people who are beginning to be afraid that America itself is just breaking down, that our democracy itself is failing. And I feel that way myself often. And, you know, when you think about the, the January 6th insurrection, you think about the voting rights that are getting pushed backwards and a whole bunch of other stuff. As a progressive, I get scared. But here's what I also know. It's not just progressives like myself who are scared. I've got a lot of conservative friends, and they're scared, too, about America's potential demise. But they're looking at different indicators. For them, they're worried about the big technology companies they think are unfairly censoring Americans from their point of view and that freedom of speech and freedom of religion just not being respected in the same way. So they've got their fears about where we're going. And if we're going to find any kind of common ground and move forward together, we really need to understand each other's fears, understand where each other is coming from, even if we don't always agree. And that's why I'm really happy that we got the Guess we have today. We've got the former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. Now, Newt and I have known each other for years, almost a decade now. We used to have a TV show together called Crossfire on CNN. And we worked together on really big issues in real life, like criminal justice reform, addiction, and others. So I know Newt Gingrich very well, and I consider him to be a friend. Now, that said, we disagree with each other on a ton of stuff. Uh, Newt is a very, very strong conservative. I think everybody knows that. Um, He's got all the values that come with that. And I, on my side, am a very, very strong progressive. And yet we had this conversation. Now, I want to alert you, especially my progressive friends, my progressive listeners, there are moments in my conversation with Newt where you might get frustrated because you feel like I'm not pushing back on everything he says that I don't agree with, and I'm not quibbling with him about everything he says that, as a progressive, I see differently. I want you to understand, I'm doing that on purpose. I don't want to quibble with him about everything. I'm looking for the areas where we do agree. 
And our differences, frankly, are very well stated elsewhere on all these topics. I don't think I would be doing you a big service by having us rehash all the stuff we don't agree about. I'm trying to find some common ground. And I think you might be surprised or inspired by the common ground that we do find. We actually see eye to eye on a bunch of stuff when it comes to, for instance, wanting a voting and electoral system that everybody can trust. We actually both agree that we need some new ideas about energy in part to solve the climate crisis. Uh, And most importantly, we both really, really care deeply about the people who the Bible refers to as the least of these. I'm talking about the addicted, the convicted, the afflicted. And we may not always agree on the root problems (laughs) or what to do about it, but we do have common ground even there. So what happens when we try to have a good faith conversation about some of the big ideas that are going on in the country, some of the big problems that we have in the country? Can a strong conservative like Newt Gingrich and a progressive like myself engage with each other? Can we challenge each other? Can we come together? Can we get anything done? Well, stick around. You're going to find out. I want you to listen to my conversation with Newt Gingrich right after this break. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Visceral, dramatic, uncompromising. The third-generation Range Rover Sport redefines sporting luxury and is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable model yet. Combining assertive on-road performance with signature refinement, Range Rover Sport communicates power and agility. Dynamic by design, it delivers an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure, while the purposeful cockpit-like driving position of Range Rover Sport sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Most people assume, if you're as conservative as you are and as left-wing as I am, that there's no way you can't possibly work together. Nothing could get done. But I think we've proven that that's not necessarily true. Well, I I think that's right. And I think... uh... Part of it is just decide. First of all, we happen to like each other, and that helps. That sort of, yes. uh, I think, makes it easier. But in addition, I think, mm-hmm. you know, if you can learn to accentuate the positive, to go back to an old song, mm-hmm. you really can find common ground to do something. And then you yeah. you kind yep. of discipline yourself that you can go over later on and talk with other people about the stuff we don't agree on. But for us, let's stay on the things we can agree on. And I do think we've achieved some things. And frankly, I've learned a lot being with you. And um, you represent a much different background and a much different network than I do. And it's been really helpful to me to have a broader view and to have a deeper understanding of how complex the system is. 
Well, I, I feel the same way. And my team, you know, Jessica Jackson and, and others, you know, I think my understanding of how the country works would be completely impoverished if we hadn't joined forces almost 10 years ago and gotten stuff done for people, you know, I call it the least of these. Well, and I, and I would I would say, the, to go back to your point, that Jessica Jackson deserves a lot of credit because her determination and her positive attitude makes it easier. Well, look, I wanted to take a, a bigger step back and just look at the country as a whole. I think uh, you and I would agree a democratic republic is the rarest, probably the most in some ways fragile form of government over the past 10,000 years of human history. It's very rare. They often don't last. And yet we have one. And not only do we have a democratic republic, we have a democratic republic that is multi-faith, multi-ethnic, multi-whatever-you-want-to. I think you know we're kind of one of one in terms of human history. But I'm concerned that we may be losing it. I just look at the polling data. I look at the polarization. I look at the fussing and fighting. And I wonder if you share my concern that if we're not careful, that we could be on a pathway to the kind of internal strife that does end democracies, that does result in people looking back and regretting that we didn't look for some on-ramps. Um, I mean, how, how do you see the level of polarization that we're dealing with now? Yeah, I, I would say that it's a combination of polarization and disintegration, that there are two different patterns underway. Polarization, to some extent, is right-left, and it's both ideological and cultural. But one of the things we're working on at Gingrich 360 is the concept of lives and deaths of despair. Uh, when you have our mm. current suicide rate, our current uh, drug overdose rate, our current homeless population, you have young people who have bought enough into global warming that they literally think they shouldn't have children because right. the world's going to end. There are whole cycles out there of despair that aren't ideological polarization. They're people who somehow have given up on life. What 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 worries me is is this, you know, I worry some about the pure polarization, the left versus the right. I worry some about the extremes on both sides. But I, I worry equally about a sort of lack of faith in the future. We historically had this dynamic sense of a better future, and it drew us together so that whatever our current problems were, we could somehow agree to let's let's go out and, you know, it's, it's kind of like the barn raising among the Amish. I mean, we'd all go to get together and go do something. Now, right. there are a, a really sobering number of people who are just kind of out of it. I mean, it's it's they they have no investment in America. I, I did a very interesting podcast recently with Dennis Prager, and, and Prager made the point that rituals really matter. We're right. actually doing it on on uh, Passover, and which is uh, uh, he argues is the oldest continuous holiday in human history. It goes back, you know, something like thirty three hundred years, and is still almost exactly the same celebration. But his point is that the Jewishness occurs as a function of the rituals. You pass it on to the children who learn the rituals. And that when you give up all the, you know, and he, he cited, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance, the Star Spangled Banner, celebrating the 4th of July, having some notion of who Washington is. At some point, there aren't enough touch points to remind you what being an American was. And you just become part of an of a atomized glob of people 
pursuing self-interest. And then you don't have any kind of overarching sense of community and, and sacrificing for the community. Well, I think, you know, this kind of pessimism about the future, this despair, this lack of hope is something that I see as well. And, you know, one of the rituals that we have is voting. Everybody gets a chance to show up. And yet even that has become something that is contested. And what I'm, I'm very concerned about that ritual in particular because I fear that we're going to be in a double legitimacy crisis very soon. If Democrats don't trust Republicans to count votes fairly and Republicans don't trust Democrats to cast votes fairly, which is, that's basically how I would sum that's up a, the debate. That's a, that's a good formula. <laughs> right. Then whoever wins, half the side won't accept it. And when I talk to my Democratic friends, there's deep fear that Republicans are going to not count the votes fairly, that in red states, they're going to just overturn elections. When I talk to my Republican friends, they fear that we're not going to cast votes fairly, that there's massive fraud, that we don't want voter ID, and that's right there by, is, is, is de facto admission of something. And you could wind up in a double legitimacy crisis. Do you share my concern about these upcoming elections? Yes. You know, instead of resolving this crisis, actually making it worse? Yeah, I do. And I think that uh, the, the fact that we can't find a common ground on which to even talk about it makes it worse. Right. I also think it's compounded, and I know that you're an attorney and I'm not, so I hope you won't, I hope you won't regard this as a purely anti-lawyer comment, but it is in a sense. <laughs> We've become a country, whether it's the Harvard Business School or it's the Yale Law School, which has emphasized winning over justice. So if you're mm. really clever and you can win a case, even though you know that what you just did created a total falsehood, but you won. If you are a business and you can find some clever way to uh, maximize profit long enough to uh, retire, uh, even if you leave a wreck behind you, then you've won. And that's been carried over into politics. Uh, there was a lot of corrupt politics in all of American history. I mean, it's not, mm. it's, it's, that, that's not necessarily new. But it has become to a point now where cleverness is winning rather than justice. When, when we yeah. were working really hard together, both under Obama and under Trump, to really try to find a better path forward for the country in terms of dealing with criminal justice, one of the keys was to, to get people to understand that there is an American family and that it was the American family that was being weakened. Uh, I think I think anytime you get into a what anthropologists would describe as a description of the other, you know, right. they're not really us. They're not really people. I mean, the the conquistadors arrived and met the Aztecs, and the, each each side thought the, the, that they weren't humans; they were the other. Well, when you get into those kind of situations, it's very hard to pull us together. But I think part of the success we had, and I give Governor Deal of Georgia a great deal of credit because he, his yeah, son had been a, a lawyer in a, in a drug court, or a judge rather, in a drug court, and had convinced his father as governor that a lot of the people they were putting in jail shouldn't go to jail, that it wasn't, right. it wasn't that kind of a problem, and that we had replaced state mental hospitals with jails, and that that was a net loss on every front. And I think it was that sense of, you know, that could be my cousin or that could be my son or daughter. 
that sense of commonality and let, let you and me be a lot more successful than we would have been if we couldn't break through at that level. No, I think that's right. And you know, being able to find that, that common ground, it's harder to do that now. But you know, there was a time when it's hard to, to believe this, but there were people who felt that politics had become too genteel. You, and frankly, you were, you were one of them. When you were a young guy, you felt that things had gotten too genteel in D.C. and that you need to kind of turn the temperature up. Right. Now I think the temperature is too hot. As you look back, you know, when you were the young, the young Newt Gingrich, the young firebrand, the young backbencher, then then the young Speaker of the House, the first Republican Speaker of the House in forever. How do you look at that moment in your life where you said, look, too much consensus, too much until the now too little. How do you, how do you, what would you say, what would you say to the young Newt Gingrich from where you are now? Well, I, I had a very particular problem. I represented a party which was in the habit of losing. If you're the dominant party, you want everything to be genteel, to use your word. And if you're the minority party, you had better learn to fight or you're going to guarantee, we well, spent 40 years in the wilderness. And in fact, we spent 16 years in the wilderness with me trying to get us out of the wilderness. And it, it was a long march. So I think it depends on where you, in part, on where you are. But I, I was very right. pleased. Now, there's, I recently had a snotty article by some guy at the Post about having been the guy who created modern partisanship. And I wrote a letter back, which the Post actually published, to my surprise, saying, if you look at every major piece of legislation we passed when I was Speaker, every single one of them had a substantial Democratic vote. When we passed welfare reform, we split the Democrats 101 to 101. And pe people just have no notion that, well, how did you do that? You did it by going through the regular legislative process, having the subcommittees mark up, the committees mark up, going to the floor and accepting amendments and letting people buy into being together. Now, I was also doing it for a practical reason. I wanted the Democrats to be comfortable in the minority. I wanted to go back. <laughs> the minute I was in charge, I was for comedy. I thought, this is really great because it now served my interest as the majority. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, one of the failures I had with Trump was after he won, I went to him and I said, the first thing you should take up is uh, infrastructure. And the reason is you'll get half or more of the Democrats to help you write the bills. And you can put them on Air Force One and you can go visit their district and you will have created a bipartisan presidency. And unfortunately, both Paul Ryan as speaker and Mitch McConnell as Senate Majority Leader came in and said, oh, no, no. What we ought to do is focus on repealing Obamacare. And I said, look, when you want a guarantee of a partisan four years, mm -hmm. then you start by focusing on it. I mean, you can get around to Obamacare eventually, but first create a, a, a sense of jointness. And had Trump done that, uh, he would have been dramatically more acceptable. And and half the Democrats would have said, wait a second. You know, I, I was just on Air Force One taking the president to see this new bridge in my district, and he's not that bad a guy. But if you get to start with a war over Obamacare, you guarantee you, you're giving a gift to the minority party. You're saying to them, let me make sure you're really partisan. This idea that you mentioned about winning, by the way, you tried to put the winning only on us Yale law folks, but you're trying to win, too, when you were in the minority. So this idea of a, how, how, what kind of game are we playing in America? Are we playing a win at all cost game, which it sometimes always it can you can always in a moment justify it. But then what is the cost? And I think both sides are looking down the barrel of that. When you're when you feel your back is against the wall, you say, I got to win at all costs. 
And what I'm seeing is my liberal progressive friends, we feel our back is against the wall. We feel the Republicans are on the roll now and they're, they're going to do us in. And then when I talk to my Republican friends, they feel the same way. Right. But they're pointing to different things. It seems to me the Republican, my Republican friends are pointing to these guys have Hollywood on their side. They've got Silicon Valley on their side. They've got the Academy on their side. And they're going to crush us culturally, force us to go with them on race and gender and sexuality in ways we don't feel comfortable with. We got to fight back. Then when I talk to my Democratic friends, no, no, no. We have nothing. All we got is some tweets. They've got governorships. They've got, you know, an advantage in the electoral college. They've got too many votes in the Senate. They've got all this stuff again. We're now both sides. Our backs are against the wall. We got to win at all costs. You know, in a sense, you could do an interesting essay on the concept of the age of two sieges that both sides mm -hmm. think they're under siege. 100%. You know, and, and, and that becomes an enormous problem. We have a we have yeah. a project that we're work, that that is available by the way to anybody who wants to go to AmericanMajorityProject.com. We we we're doing polling. This is an idea that Bernie Marcus, who founded Home Depot, came up with, and he came to me a couple of years ago and said, "Can you try to find issues that are so popular that you could literally build a seventy or eighty percent majority so that you could govern, so that you'd be beyond this current." I mean, now we're really locked in almost a death struggle. Um, and and if if one side or the other only wins by a handful of votes, it'll just stay like that. And part of the trick is to figure out, are there themes and issues and concepts that bring us together enough that you could have a genuinely bipartisan majority and you could have it validated by the American people because they would say, yeah, that is what I want. And I think that's Probably one of the most important challenges of the next decade is to recognize how, how deep the stress on the system is right now and to try to find ways to find themes and language and issues that unify rather than cause civil wars. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. On the Nintendo Switch system, you can team up with friends in Super Mario Brothers Wonder. Where you can meet talking flowers. Life's full of surprises. And where piranha plants sing. <laughs> and where Mario, Luigi, and Peach turn into elephants. Wowie zowie! And where this announcer turns into a... Super tiny announcer! <laughs> That's not in the game. <clears throat> Sorry, got a little excited. Nintendo Switch, the home of Mario and friends. Game rated E for everyone. Game and systems sold separately.
earlier this year, you and Callista put out a, a very, I, I think, unifying letter uh, calling for Americans to have tolerance for each other's differences of, of opinion, reading and listening to news sources that you don't listen to every That's day, right. which I make, make a real habit of doing, including your podcast. And you laid out a couple of issues. I just wanted to walk through them. Natural disasters, addiction, homelessness, and crime might be some areas that we could work on together. I just want to tick through each of those. We'll see them differently, possibly. But like, let's actually show people <laughs> that a good conservative and a good progressive can actually identify some stuff. Natural disasters. I, I haven't heard you use that phrase before. Why, why would did natural disasters occur to you as, as an area of possible conflict? Well, I mean, I, I looked at it in part based on, for example, California wildfires. I mean, the scale of the fires were so enormous that you had to say to yourself, is there a better way of managing the forest? Now, something I'd, I'd looked at years ago. I used to teach environmental studies. I have a deep passion about the natural world. We've adopted some policies, for example, that allow a beetle infestation that in uh, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico area actually has killed hundreds of thousands of acres of trees. Well, those dead trees then become tinder for gigantic yeah. fires. And so if you go back and you look at the great conservationists, say, Gifford Pinchot, Theodore Roosevelt, up through the 20s and early 30s, they actually tried to figure out what would scientific forestry be? How, how could I actually have some kind of, of opportunity to work with nature? I think on the, on the Democratic side, when we look at some of those wildfires, we think about issues like global warming sure. and, and climate change and climate disruption. There was a time when that was a bipartisan issue. Uh, I remember when, when John McCain and, and Barack Obama ran against each other. You know, climate solutions was pretty much the only thing that they agreed on. I remember there was a time when you and Nancy Pelosi got together on that issue. Now it seems that issue is almost completely impossible for us to, to work on together. Why is that? What, what happened to the bipartisan consensus on climate solutions? I, I think two things. One is the sort of Al Gore exaggeration. If you actually go back and look at his movie and then you look at reality since then, uh, there's a pretty big gap. Uh, and so you have a lot of conservatives who are reacting to the exaggerations. And the other was the, really the, the question of whether or not the only solutions are big government and high taxes and, and controls by bureaucracies. Hmm. A good example is forest fires. I mean, if you worry about carbon loading of the atmosphere, you have to have an amazing number of Teslas to offset one <laughs> offset one California wildfire. And pe people right. just don't, you know, they don't do a serious, realistic review. I, look, you and I would agree that I think there's a grand bargain to be done on climate solutions. Absolutely. I think what you have to do is recognize that the pure math means that in order, if you want to do it all wind and solar, you'd have to glaze the whole continent with solar panels. And then you, you wouldn't have uh, these other things we like called, you know, animals and wildlife and stuff like that. So that, but wind and solar has got to be a part of it. I think natural gas is a good bridge for fuel. Nuclear has to be a part of the solution. I think if you have that and then you could tie that with, with jobs of, you know, weatherizing homes and stuff like that, you probably could get to a grand bargain. But it seems like it's now almost become tribal, for lack of a better term, that we just can't even talk about the issue. I think tribal is exactly right. I mean, I think uh, well, and I'll give you an example because I'm I'm a space nut. I, I really believe a large part of our future is in space. And I think uh, when when you look at the 
the impact of people like Elon Musk, uh, who, you know, great entrepreneurs suddenly create possibilities that didn't exist prior to their inventiveness. If you, if you really wanted a grand bargain, part of it might well be to put up the first solar-powered satellite system that generated directly from the sun uh, and that, in fact, could generate an enormous quantity of electricity in space That's smart. and then beam it down through microwave. There's no question about the science. It's an engineering problem. And it's probably the best long-term alternative to nuclear power. And by the way, I've never thought about the you you, know, you being the space guy combining, I think, a unifying push to space with a unifying need for energy independence, with the unifying need for us to leapfrog yeah. on technology. I guarantee that's 80% right there. So we already got that's at least right. one 80% solution just right. <laughs> let's, let's, hit, let's hit addiction really quickly. You know, you and I have worked very closely together with advocates for opioid recovery. Um, any solutions that you think um, we're missing on addiction either solutions or just conversations? I mean, it is a common ground uh, a problem. Well, I, uh, I think there are two very different problems. And, and by the way, I think that the addiction problem uh, not only leads to overdoses, but also is a component of the suicides and is a component of homelessness. Uh, and, I, and I'm very deeply troubled that a country as rich and capable as we are has the scale of homelessness you see in some place like California, like San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, Seattle. There's something profoundly wrong with our society and the fact that we can't even have a discussion about it. Part of it grew out of a decision in the 50s and 60s to close down the mental hospitals. If somebody's schizophrenic and they don't want to take their medicines, because their medicines flatten them out, their, their medicines leave them with a feeling of dullness. Yeah. What is our right as a society and what is our obligation as a society? If you give them pure freedom, there's a pretty good chance they're going to end up in a homeless shelter or they're going to end up in a homeless neighborhood. On the other hand, if they're not directly harming anybody, are you really prepared to coerce them? And this is the kind of stuff where we really need to have a lot more civilized and a lot lengthier conversation. This isn't three tweets, you know, or, or right. two and a half minutes on CNN and Fox. There's a need here for a real conversation as a country, which is why you need the legislative process. I mean, you need the hearings. You need smart people getting together and recognizing that they don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, conversations like this, I think, are really important and really helpful. You mentioned crime in your list. You didn't say criminal justice reform. This time you said crime. And I noticed that. And I wondered, uh, how do you look back now? You know, we worked together during that golden era, the last four years of Obama, the first three years of Trump, where we were able to get, I think, very smart, targeted criminal justice reform done. They said we were able to bring incarceration rates down and crime down. Now, the past 18 months, though, you're seeing crime tick back up. And it makes me worry that people may either blame some of the reforms inaccurately or maybe we did something wrong. How do you think about um, the good track record bipartisan that we had on criminal justice reform, both sides voting overwhelmingly for these bills? And then now these past 18 months, you're seeing this uptick in crime. What is that? How do you make sense of that? This is my view that, that you have you have two problems that we have to learn how to address. And I don't know if we and we may not be able to do it on a, on a totally bipartisan basis both of which involve repression. 
I am for repressing murderers, rapists, carjackers, uh, and I am for repressing, although in a different way and using a different pattern, I am for repressing repeat offenders. You know, if, if, if you are determined to go in and steal every day, then I want to, I'm determined to not, you know, let you do it. But with the repeat of it, I have a very different attitude. If you're violent, I really do think that the burden is on you to shut, to explain to me why I should ever put you back where you can be violent. We saw this with the, uh, the, the 24-year-old college student who was killed by the guy who I think had been released 17 times. Um, on the other hand, if, if you've just engaged in a series of really stupid habits, petty theft, et cetera, I want to figure out how to retrain you. I think we use prisons too much for too yep. many people, and then we don't take responsibility for the fact that if I had you in there for six years, seven years, 15 years, and I sent you back out, I have some responsibility to make sure that while you were there, you were learning something, and when, and when you left, you landed on your feet. So I think, that that's, I think that's right. I want to throw one more crazy idea at you, and you tell me if you think it's right or wrong. This issue around trust in voting is going to take this country down. We have got to solve it. And what I was thinking about is nobody argues about whether a Bitcoin is real. They argue whether a vote is real. But this blockchain technology, the whole purpose and point of it is, is to make sure that nobody can ever argue or dispute about the validity of that Bitcoin. Why can't we have blockchain technological solutions for voting? If we could have the same level of confidence in a vote that we have in a Bitcoin, then both then now only the nuts on either side can complain. <laughs> and then you have some people that just want to complain. But I think the, the average Republican, if they believed, okay, I have seen this technology. I looked under the hood. My leaders have signed off on it. The Democrat leaders have signed off on it. Now when we vote, it is trusted. In other words, if trust is the issue, I don't trust you to cast right. I don't trust you to count right. Maybe there's a technological solution for that, just like there was for energy and everything sure. else. No, I actually, this may shock you. I agree with you. Uh, I've, I've talked <laughs> at length with Governor Rick Perry, whose uh, son runs a Bitcoin manufacturing, a mining facility, I guess they're called, uh, down in Austin. Mm-hmm. And they absolutely believe the blockchain uh, could be the solution to having an honest, accurate account. Uh, so I'm, oh. I am very much for developing that and experimenting with it. And I think it would be fascinating to see what the objections would be. Uh, yeah. Because, <laughs> That's so, but I'm, I'm with you. I mean, if, if, if someplace down the road, if you want to actually uh, try to put together a bipartisan blockchain voting yeah. operation, uh, I'm with you. I mean, I, I'm, uh, first of all, I think it'll be a lot of fun and we'd learn a lot. But second, I actually do think having, I, I mean, I think reestablishing a sense of legitimacy is at the heart of a free society. If you if you think the system's illegitimate, you you can't organize the society. And if you go back and you look at our greatest presidents, they were very careful. Uh, Lincoln, for example, at the start of the Civil War, FDR at the start of World War II, uh, Washington, both as commander and then later as president. I mean, they knew that if they didn't have the people with them, they couldn't do things. And they were cautious right. about that. And we're in a cycle right now where neither side can mobilize the country because the country doesn't tr- – half the country distrusts each side. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I, I, I'm going to take you up on that. You know, we, we pulled that summit together 
uh, it, people thought it was the weirdest thing. We said bipartisan criminal justice great. reform. I know, and we and we had Obama's attorney general shows up, and a conservative Republican yeah. from Georgia shows up, as and yeah. and and it kind of the chemistry and, kind of worked. I, it might it be possible to put together a blockchain voting project that has a similar capacity to draw people from both sides. Well, look, let, let's let's do it. I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna have my folks call your folks and let's <laughs> okay. do it. And and I I'm serious, man. Like you never know. This could, right. this could be the thing people point back to and say, "Hey, we we pulled the democracy back out the." It would be the, good the, from from the. Yeah, man. Well, look, I appreciate you very much. I appreciate the time. I love working with you. You know, we don't we don't see things the same way. But I tell you, we we're looking at the same problem, yeah. and that's half of it. You know, we're looking at at the hopelessness. We're looking at. The need for opportunity. We're looking at the need for us to stay together as a country, and and let me and you stay I'd together. Love to. I appreciate it. It's always you. good to be with you. We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful. Those who become American citizens love this country even more, and that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp to welcome them to the Golden Door. Part of the reason I love talking to Speaker Gingrich is that he's strong. He has very, very clear convictions. And that often, if you look at it the wrong way, that can scare you. Oh, my God, that's a very strong left winger. That AOC, man, she's strong. I'm scared of her. What's she going to do with all her you know, charisma? Newt Gingrich, man, he's, he's tough. I, I think, actually, given the crisis that we're in as a country, we need strong people. We need people who are... Strong partisans who have strong networks, who have strong points of view, who have big followings. We need those people because we need strength to solve these problems. And what I've seen over and over again with Newt Gingrich and other people on the right with whom I've worked, you got to fight them 99% of the time. But that 1% of the time when you get something done together is unbelievable. I look at the situation we're in differently than I did when I was younger. When I was a younger guy, I really thought of myself as a little bitty David going up against a bunch of Goliaths every day. I was working on police brutality issues, youth violence issues, juvenile justice issues. And even though I was in California, in those days, California Democrats were some of the toughest people on building prisons and that type of stuff. And so it was tough. And I saw myself as David against Goliath. At this stage, I see it differently. I think we're in a different part of the Bible since we just talked to Newt Gingrich. I think we're in a different part of the Bible. I, I I aspire to be more like Mr. and Mrs. Noah. I think we're in trouble. I mean, Goliath might get wiped out to sea or burned up in a, in a wildfire or wiped out by COVID just as much as anybody else. I want Goliath to help me build the ark. I want every opportunity that I can find for people who have any kind of constituency to come together to build a way forward. Uh, we can fuss and fight and argue, but when you have democracy now hanging by a thread, uh, when you have the ecological catastrophe that we're talking about, such as even Newt Gingrich is talking about wildfires, and I don't think anybody wants to live on a planet that's you know nothing but floods, fires, and extinctions on the left or the right. I think that there are a number of issues that we can have a temporary ceasefire and work on together and get some things done. And I am going to, I promise you, follow up with Newt Gingrich on this idea of some kind of blockchain solution to restore trust in voting. 
and the stuff we I disagree with them on, I'll fight them on. I've been, you know, that's that's not a problem. You know, we disagree on immigration and other issues. But I hope that you will go through the exercise of looking at some of the people who are in your own life who maybe sometimes you're in conflict with or you find to be annoying or scary or intimidating. And just ask the question, what could we do together? Is there something we could work on together? Is there some kid we could help? Is there some scholarship we could launch? Is there some park we could clean up? Is there some you know, challenge we could meet where their strength is actually could be useful? Uh, I don't think we come up with enough good homework assignments for each other. I don't think we come up with enough good requests, invitations, and pleas and prayers with each other. But we're going to have to start doing that. We are headed into two election cycles that could tear us apart or bring us together. And I hope that whatever you think of me or Newt or our friendship, you see some opportunity for your own path and your own life to find ways to bring people together. I will say, uh, ironically, uh, I've got a chance to work with people at all levels of government uh, over the past 30 years, on the left, on the right, state, local, federal, even tribal uh, governments here in the United States. And of all the people I've worked with, I think the person that has shocked the most people <laughs> and the person I've actually in some ways accomplished the most with because it was a shock factor was Newt Gingrich. And I hope to have him back on uh, talking about the next round of solutions that we worked on together. This is Van Jones on Common Ground. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Adesua Agbanile, and Lindsay Cradlewell. Our managing producers are Lauren D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for this show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Moraes, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Taylor Williamson, Drew Schwindeman, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkneen, Vanessa Rebert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jacobin. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you wanna understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.